Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I am your host and narrator, Springheel Jack, and as always, I'd like to take this time to thank you for tuning in to another episode. Your support, your reviews, and your patronage mean the world to me, and I genuinely appreciate it. If you're easily offended, and this is your first time listening, I would encourage you to find a different show to listen to and spare me the negative reviews on whatever platform you choose to listen to podcasts. With no more further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Alright squad, thanks to the overwhelmingly positive reviews the last time I did this, today we're going to be doing another Twilight Zone story. The Odyssey of Flight 33. They don't talk about the flight much anymore. At least, the old pros don't. On occasion, a vastly theoretical article will appear in a Sunday paper, or a mention will be made in a book on air disasters, but, by and large, the world's day-to-day catastrophes are sufficient in scope and number to take even the loss of a giant airliner off of their agenda. But, with the old pros, it's different. It isn't that other flight talk takes precedence, it's simply that Flight 33 and what did or didn't happen to it carries somewhat of a chill. Even now, just 11 months later, you never hear it mentioned in the ops rooms where pilots chain smoke and watch the weather reports, nor in the control towers when the tense and tired men who talk the planes down get a respite for a quick cup of coffee and a smoke. There are other cases of disappearing aircraft on record, of course. There was Amelia Earhart, who took off from New Guinea for the mid-Pacific island of Howland and was never heard from again. There was the less well-known but equally tragic case of the two United States Navy AD-6 Sky Raiders on a flight for Fallon, Nevada, who neither arrived nor left a clue as to what happened to them. There was the mysterious case of the two British airliners, the Star Ariel, and a sister ship, the Star Tiger. The Tiger vanished over the Sea of Weeds, called the Sargasso Sea, which lies in the Atlantic off the Bahamas. Thirteen days later, the Ariel followed her into oblivion. No trace of either plane was ever found. But Flight 33 was different. It was a jet airliner, beautiful, graceful, full of incredible power, as safe as any plane could be. And it simply had no business disappearing. It was too fine an aircraft. And yet, whatever yanked it out of the skies was a power that couldn't be reckoned with on a design board or in an engineer's manual. That's why you rarely hear of it when pilots and crews congregate. Call it superstition. Vestiges of black magic. Call it that strange and unspoken mysticism that somehow is always to be found amongst the highly scientific body of men who fight gravity for a living. But, whatever you call it, Don't ever ask a captain, a first officer, or any crew member to talk about the trans-ocean flight that disappeared between London and New York on a quiet, otherwise uneventful June afternoon. Because most likely, they'll just pretend that they didn't hear you. Trans-Ocean 33 was airborne at 8.30 a.m. and left a fog-shrouded London International Airport under normal and routine circumstances. It was marshmallow and drifting whipped cream until the 707 reached 21,000 feet and broke into that incredibly clear blue sky, the vast universe that hangs perpetually and majestically above the crowded, dingy world. Three hours later, the aircraft was a thousand miles from the Atlantic seaboard, the crew 
and the 103 passengers aboard had enjoyed a pleasant, unruffled flight. They were on course, and on time, and estimated to arrive at Idlewild, New York within a couple of hours. Inside the cockpit, Captain William Farver, a ruddy-faced 45-year-old pilot with several hundred thousand hours of flight time, made a visual sweep of the instrument panel, a ritual that he performed every 30 or 40 minutes. His practice gaze took in the altimeter, the Mach meter, the rate of climb indicator, the ram air indicator, and two dozen other instruments whose dials, levers, and tabs were as familiar to him as shirt buttons to the average man. At his right sat the first officer, Joe Craig, tall, young, and blonde. Craig had a tendency to be quick to anger, but he was a good pilot with know-how and a mind not a half-beat from that of the captain. Farver looked over his shoulder towards the navigator. Hey, Magellan, he said, using the nickname common to navigators. How about a flight progress report? Coming right up, Skipper, Hatch, the navigator answered. We'll be about four minutes behind the flight plan at 30 degrees west. Second Officer Wyatt, who sat at the captain's left, removed his earphones. Captain, Wyatt said. Gander wants to know if you intend to make an altitude change after we pass 30 west. Advise Gander negative, Farver responded. Hatch took a sheet of paper off a clipboard and handed it across to Purcell, the flight engineer, who scanned it briefly and gave it to Farver. Farver checked it, then gr grinned around the tiny instrument-packed cubbyhole. Gentlemen, he said happily, you'll be pleased to know that thanks to the quality of this aircraft, the fine weather, and my brilliant flying, we'll hit Idlewild on schedule if our speed holds up. He handed the report over his shoulder to Wyatt, the second officer. Send it in, Wyatt, he ordered. Wyatt put on his earphones, kicked a switch on the complex radio equipment, and spoke into the microphone. Shannon, Shannon, he said over the whistling jet engines. Copy Gander, Trans Ocean Flight 33, position 50 north, 30 west, time 1403, flight level 35,000. Estimating 52 north, 40 west at 1431. Estimating Idlewild, 1830. Endurance, by this he meant fuel. 79560H. Temperature minus 47. Acknowledge, Shannon. He listened for a moment and heard the muffled voice at the other end, then flicked the switch. Report received, Skipper, he announced. Through the flight deck door in the rear compartment, Jane Braden, the senior stewardess, entered, carrying her 112 pounds like a rocket. Her shoulder-length blonde hair was pulled back severely in a bun. But she still looked like a rocket and was built, in the memorable words of flight engineer Purcell, overhead in a bar one evening, like a steel-girded, two-funneled ship of, of the line on her inaugural sailing day. Jane leaned forward against the navigator's chair and Craig spoke to her without turning. How are we doing back there, Jane? Your passengers are highly content, but on behalf of the stewardesses, we would like to respectfully request that we get to New York as soon as possible. She smiled, and the smile was bright and beautiful, much like the rest of her. One's going to the opera, she continued. Three have heavy dates, and the fourth is available to any honorable and single male crew member. There was laughter at this, and Purcell half rose in his seat to announce his qualifications in a piping voice that always made him sound like a chest with a built-in saxophone. Farver, laughing with the rest of them, suddenly broke off and stared out into space. Like many pilots, somewhere along the line the captain had developed a sixth sense for anything being amiss. 
It could be a slightly laboring engine that skipped once in a thousand revolutions. It could be a stodgy rudder that an engineer wouldn't pick up with a microscope, but a pilot could feel it. Or it could be a sensation of something, something indefinable, something without a precedent that would suddenly blanket him with a packed ice feeling of impending doom. And at 35,000 feet, in a 600-mile-an-hour airplane, trouble wore a thousand masks, a million disguises. It could creep out of a crevice at any point along the 146-foot fuselage of a 707. And Farber now had that feeling. Hold it a minute, he said. He stared off to the left of the instrument panel, obviously listening. Then he turned to Craig. You feel anything, he asked. Craig, too, listened. Feel anything? Uh, no. What do you mean, Skipper? Farber shook his head. I don't know. I felt something. Something funny. A sensation of speed. His eyes ran hurriedly across the instrument panel. I can't even put my fingers on it. Then he took a deep breath and seemed to relax. Guess I'm just getting old and paranoid. Craig glanced at the instruments. True airspeed, 540, Skipper. We're level. Do you suppose we picked up a tailwind or something? Farber shook his head. Maybe. Those jet streams are tricky. I remember a TWA guy once told me that he hit one that he figured was adding 200 knots to his ground speed. This is just a crazy feeling I can't shake. You can't feel a tailwind, but I swear I feel something. Craig shook his head. Everything looks all right, Skipper. Try to relax. Magellan, Farber said to the navigator, give us a speed check with your Loran. Right, Hatch answered. He watched the grid lines of the black box in front of him, where the two pinpoints of light appeared and disappeared. His jaw tightened and perspiration appeared on his forehead. I'd better do it again, he said. What's going on? Jane began to ask. Hatch told her to shut up. Hold it a minute. Again, he studied the Loran. Skipper, he said tersely, Loran indicates a ground speed of 830 knots. He shook his head, mystified. I've never heard of a tailwind like that. Farber's voice was tight. Check it again. Then he turned to Wyatt. See if you can raise OSV Charlie air defense radar, and asked them to give us a fix and check our ground speed. He then turned back to the navigator. Hatch, are you sure about the Loran? Hatch's eyes were glazed with concentration as he studied the instrument. Skipper, I'm not only sure, but we're still accelerating. It's 980 now. He hunched closer over the Loran. 1120, 1500. His lips began to tremble and his face suddenly looked white. Jesus, God, he half shouted. I can't even keep up with it. Have we gotten anything from air defense? Farver barked at Wyatt. No, sir, was the answer. I can't get a hold of him. Hatch half rose in his seat, his voice trembling. 2100, honest to God, 2100 and still climbing. I hope the wings stay on. It was more than just a statement from Craig. It was like a prayer. They will, Farver answered grimly. Don't worry about the wings. Just watch that true airspeed. Ground speed doesn't mean a goddamn thing. We're just in one hell of a jet stream. He looked down at the instruments and then shook his head in total disbelief which was almost shock. Magellan, he said, his voice raised. My needle just reversed on Gander Omni. He looked up. How in God's name could we get past Gander? Give me, give me a fast position check. Hatch stood on his seat in order to put his head into the tiny astrodome over the cockpit. He took a fast fix on the sun. For a moment, he was silent. Then he said, Skipper, we are past Gander. We must be doing 3,000 knots. Taut. Suddenly lined faces looked at another in fear, like an airborne virus infected the room. Farver's voice cut into the silence. 
Try to raise Harmon Control, he ordered Wyatt. If you can't raise them, try Montcon or Boston. At this speed, you might as well try to get Idlewild. Wyatt again went on the radio. Transocean 33, he said, his voice trembling slightly. Transocean 33, Harmon Control, come in please. Harmon, please acknowledge. Transocean 33, Moncton. Transocean 33, Boston Control, come in please. Transocean 33 to Idlewild Control, can you hear us, please? Wyatt lowered the mic. Nothing, he said quietly, I can't raise anybody. Fear was the silence that followed the announcement. It was the sweat on Wyatt's forehead. It was that grim set to Craig's face. It was the panicky fluttering of Jane Braden's heart. And to Captain Farver, it was an interloper threatening his coolness, his presence of mind, his ability to think and make a decision. The instrument in front of his eyes told him a lie. They couldn't be going that fast. Not not, and stay in one piece. There's no way. Not and have wings remain on the aircraft. Not without being shaken to pieces and disintegrating into so many tons of falling metal. And yet they were continuing to accelerate and the big 707 shot through the sky in a denial of logic and truth and of mathematical equation. And yet, inside its aluminum hull, the five crew members stared at their instruments. Deep inside, they acknowledged their fears and gave silent assent to their helplessness. A few moments later, Jane Braden closed the flight deck door behind her and went into the lounge. Her assistant, Paula Temple, a short, attractive brunette, was pouring coffee in a tray in a small galley adjoining the lounge. Paula looked up and winked at her. I hope you told those fly people to hurry up. I'm seeing the ride of the Valkyrie tonight. But then she saw the look on Jane's face. What's the matter, she whispered. Jane Braden entered the gallery and pulled the curtain around them, closing them off from the lounge. Jane, Paula persisted, you know I've always had a thing for Valhalla stories. Her voice shook slightly. Be a good girl and tell me if I'll be there in time to see the show. Jane leaned closer to her. Let me put it to you this way, she said. It's my most earnest wish that the Valhalla you're talking about is at the Metropolitan Opera in little old New York. Instead of what? Paula's voice was a whisper. Instead of, instead of a uh, conducted tour into the real thing, I think we're in trouble, Paula. How bad? Paula asked. They don't know yet. She looked down at Paula's tray. Go ahead and serve it. Paula grabbed the trays in her shaking hands and started to pull the curtains apart. Paula, Jane said to her. Paula turned. The beautiful blonde winked at her, like coffee, tea, or milk, and with a smile. Paula nodded, forcing a tight smile of her own as she gripped the tray tighter. You got a deal, she announced, but I wish to God I'd gone to acting school. She pulled the curtain apart and carried the tray past the lounge into the first-class compartment. She walked down the aisle, conscious of the faces on either side of her. Men, women, a sleeping infant, an RAF officer. Innocent, trusting faces of human beings who felt total trust in the well-trained father figure at the controls of this complex vehicle. They felt safe because the alternative was panicked insanity. A stout, mouth-flapping, middle-aged woman who was every tourist who'd ever complained about cold water in a London hotel and trumpeted America's preeminence in the field of plumbing fixtures, spewed out a monologue to the tall, gray-haired RAF pilot beside her. It's as my late husband used to say, she gurgled. The only problem with the British, aside from the fact that you're perhaps a little behind the times, is this awful coldness of you people. You just don't seem to emotionalize anything. You're such a cold fish about everything. And you know it's a fact. A person gets sick of holding things in. She swept on without dropping a beat. 
You know, you talk about ailments. I had a cousin once in Boise, Idaho. She had one of the worst livers in the medical history of the state. When the woman passed on, God rest her soul, would you believe it? There were five medical associations bidding just to get her liver in a bottle to put on display. But her mother, my father's sister, absolutely refused to let them show her liver. And it's like I always said to my late husband. She broke off and suddenly stared at the rank insignia on the officer's shoulders. What did you say you were? She inquired. The officer with tired eyes smiled thinly. A captain, ma'am. I'm a military attaché to our British consulate in Los Angeles. Now isn't that wonderful? The woman gushed at him. A nephew of mine was in the Navy during the Second World War. He was on a cruiser or a PT boat or something like that. Or maybe a battleship. The RAF officer suddenly stared straight ahead. He first looked down at the floor, then out towards the wing. There was no loss of power, no telltale shimmying, no flame or smoke, nothing, and yet he had this feeling, this feeling that he couldn't describe even to himself. There was something wrong. This he knew. There was simply something going wrong with this plane. He turned to look down the aisle at the stewardess who was picking up the coffee trays. Were her hands shaking as she went by him? Was there an odd look on her face? Imagination can spawn one nightmarish hallucination after the other. This he knew. But the sensation persisted, and there was an odd look on the stewardess's face as she passed him. What's the matter? His stout seat companion asked him. Airsick? I've got some wonderful pills in my bag here. Do you feel anything? He interrupted her. The woman stared at him blankly. Feel anything? Like, like what? The RAF captain averted her look. Nothing, he said softly. I, I just thought I felt something. He looked at the woman briefly out of the corner of his eye and decided that he'd keep this one to himself. He smiled at her and said, What about that nephew of yours in the Navy? In the rear seat of the first-class compartment, a middle-aged man smiled at his wife. Notice how nervous that little stewardess was? Probably got some kind of big date or something when we land in New York. His wife nodded sleepily and closed her eyes. The man picked up a magazine and began to read. In the cockpit of Flight 33, the tension was like a big block of some material that could be cut with a saw. At intervals, each man looked towards Farver, hunched over his instruments. And then, Hatch, the navigator, who continued to study the Loran, shaking his head in disbelief as each moment passed. Second Officer Wyatt fiddled with his radio and kept speaking quietly into the mic. What about it? Farver asked him. Wyatt shook his head. Not a thing, sir. Nothing. Either they're out of whack, everybody out there, his voice was meaningful, or we are. Craig rolled around in his seat. Why don't you check your equipment? I checked it four times, Wyatt shouted back. Shut up, Farver interrupted. We'll just have to bolt through and see if anything... He never completed his sentence, not then or ever. There was a sudden, blinding flash of hot white light. For one fragment of a second, they seemed caught up in some kind of giant picture negative in reverse polarization. They looked foggy and indistinct. Then the cockpit shuddered and bucked. Purcell was flung from his seat. The clipboards overhead tumbled down on Hatch's head. Both Farver and Craig instinctively reached for the controls, but the light had dissipated and the plane was once again in easy level flight. Did we hit something? Craig asked breathlessly. I don't know, Farver answered briefly. Check for damage. Craig looked out the side window. Numbers three and four are still on the wing, he announced. They look okay. Farver turned from studying the left wing. Same for one and two, he said tersely. Everything seemed to be in one piece. Purcell, go aft and check for any cabin damage. Report back as fast as you can. 
I'll get on the horn and try to calm everybody down if they need calming. Tell the girls to stick with it. He turned back to the instrument panel and his eyes traversed the maze of levers and dials. We're in trouble, he said softly as if to himself, but I'll be goddamned if I knew what kind of trouble we were in. That light, Hatch said in a strained, tight voice, those crazy lights, what was it? That's something we're going to have to find out, Farver said. He turned to Craig, and quick, too. What was that shaking, Craig asked, turbulence? Farver shook his head. I don't think so. It was more like a... Like what? Craig asked impatiently. Like a sound wave, Farver said it, as if we'd gone past the speed of sound. Craig stared at him, unbelieving. You mean we hit Mach 1? We broke the sound barrier? But how the hell could that happen? We didn't get any Mach 1 warning. We probably wouldn't, Farver said. Not with a true airspeed of only 440. I don't know what it was. I just don't know. Magellan's last speed check showed 3,000 knots. We could have broken some kind of sound barrier, but... He hesitated. But not any sound barrier I've ever heard of before. Magellan, can you give me a Loran fix now? Hatch checked his equipment. Whatever that bump was, Skipper, he said, it really knocked out everything. The Loran's an operative. Altimeter and rate of climb steady, Skipper, Craig announced, checking the dials in front of him. Behind them, Wyatt fiddled with the radio. Skipper, he said, I still can't raise Gander or Montcon or Boston or anywhere. It's like I said, either they're off the air, or we are, or, or maybe both. Farver took a deep breath. Hatch, give me a sun fix. I'll need a heading to Idlewild from our last known position. If we can't raise anybody, we'll have to go down and establish visual contact. Craig looked at him amazed. Skipper, he said, we can't do that. If we leave this altitude, we'll land smack dab in the middle of 20 other flights. Does anybody have an alternative? Farber asked. Sooner or later, we're going to have to find a landmark or go VFR. With no radio contact, we're like deaf and dumb men. As long as we stay up here, we're also blind. Purcell entered from the flight deck. No damage aft, Skipper, he announced. Everybody's shaken up and a few are curious and a few of them are pretty scared. Farver took a deep breath. Them and me both. He reached for the hand mic. He flicked on the cabin PA switch and wondered how his voice sounded as he spoke into the mic. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Farver. I want to assure you that everything is fine. Craig closed his eyes and shook his head. Farver grinned, but his mouth looked as if it had been cut out of paper with scissors. There's no damage, he continued on the mic. We encountered a little clear air turbulence back there, along with some kind of atmospheric phenomena. There's been no damage to the aircraft, of this I can assure you. His eyes moved up over the mic to scan the cockpit, the radio equipment. The silent black box that had once told them precisely where they were and where they were heading. I repeat, he said, there is no cause for alarm. We'll keep you posted. If we run, according to schedule, we should be landing in Idlewild inside the next 40 minutes. He flicked off the switch, put the mic aside. Jesus, he said to himself. I should put on a gray flannel suit and sell toothpaste. There was a point, he thought to himself, where passengers and crews should link arms and face whatever there was to face. They could be milk-fed and reassured to a degree, but then you had to come clean and tell them it was altogether probable that catastrophe was about two city blocks away, and all of them had better start making their peace. This is what he thought, but what he said was, Purcell, how's our fuel? Purcell checked his instruments. 29,435 pounds was the answer. Farver shook his head, scratched his jaw. With that Loran out, I don't know what our ground speed is anymore, but I've got a hunch we've left that tailwind behind. I don't have that feeling of speed anymore, do you, Craig? Craig shook his head no. Farver looked over his shoulder. 
How about that heading to Idlewild, Magellan? Hatch scribbled furiously on a clipboard, adding, subtracting, estimating, and guessing. Part of this is scientific, he announced finally. Part of it is Kentucky bullshit. Try 262. That's as close as I can make it. Again, the silent faces stared towards the captain. The whistling of the jet engine sounded normal and natural, and yet strangely foreboding. Farver took a long, deep breath, like a man heading into an icy shower. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to take this time to recommend a book written by a dear friend of mine named Sam Stoutman, a.k.a. the Scallywag Writer. He wrote a book called Pirates and Scallywags. It's a trilogy in the making, and he just released the second book. The Pirates and Scallywags trilogy follows the adventures of three pirate captains during the golden age of piracy, from plundering ships on the high seas to wild nights and legendary scallywag haunts. Captains Umberland, Montpelier, and Estevez live life to the fullest. However, both the English and Spanish navies are furiously searching for them, committed to bringing them to justice. And in the shadows, evil forces are growing in strength, threatening to destroy all the pirates. I would love for you guys to purchase this book on Amazon. It's called Pirates and Scallywags, and it is, once again, by Sam Stoutman. So if you could please go on Amazon and order yourself a copy, you won't be disappointed. It is a great book, and he's a great guy. So please, reach out and support him if you can. All right, gentlemen, Captain Farver announced, keeping his eyes straight ahead. You know what we're up against? We have no radios. We're apparently out of touch with all ground radar points. We don't know where we are. We don't even know if we're on airways. This beast eats fuel. You know that only too well. We've got one chance. Go down through this overcast and look for something familiar. It's very possible, if not probable, that we may hit something on the way down. But we've got to take that chance. He paused. I just want you to know where we stand. Everybody, keep a sharp lookout for other traffic and keep your fingers crossed. He reached over and flicked on the seatbelt sign. His fingers tightened on the wheel in front of him and he said quietly, I don't think a few prayers would be out of order either. And then his voice was a clipped command. All right, Craig, we're going down. The 707 raised its right wing and like a monstrous yet beautiful bird, nosed down through the clouds and headed down towards Earth. Inside the cockpit, nobody spoke a word. Eyes stared through the small windows, eyes that strained like overworked optical machines, desperately trying to x-ray through the billowing clouds. It was as if by some miracle of concentration and effort, they hoped to see another airplane in time to avoid the blinding hell of a mid-air collision. But there was no other aircraft. There was nothing. Only clouds that gradually became thinner and more transparent. Suddenly, they had broken through, and below there was land. Purcell spoke first. He shook his big, curly head, looking sardonically over towards Hatch, and said, Hatch, you dumbass. Who the hell taught you to navigate? Wyatt kept shaking his head as he stared out of the window. I don't understand. Purcell cut him off. 262, Purcell mimicked ferociously. And that's supposed to take us over New York. Why, this dumb bastard couldn't navigate a kite across a living room. Hatch was stunned. Before he could answer, Farver called the shot. The captain was staring out towards his left wing and the landmass that loomed beneath it. Hold it a minute, he said quietly. Then he said to Craig, level her off. It was incredible. It was really a monstrous practical joke. 
It was a bad dream that followed a late lobster snack and an extra quart of beer. But there it was, down beneath them, stretched out in a sharp and clear relief. I don't get it, Farver said, shaking his head, but that's Manhattan Island. Manhattan Island, Purcell whispered, standing up to look over Craig's shoulder. How could it be Manhattan Island? Where the hell's the skyline? Where are the buildings? I don't know where they are, Farver said, but we're over New York. There's only one small item amiss here. Jane Braden entered from the gallery. The passengers are, she began. Uh, I don't blame them, Purcell interrupted. We're over land, Jane persisted, but I don't see any. Farver turned and stared directly at her. Any what, Jane? Any city? He shook his head. We don't see it either. He jerked his thumb towards the windshield. That's Manhattan Island down there. There's the East River and the Hudson River. There's Montauk Point and every other topographical clue that we need. He paused. The problem is, the real estate's there, it's just that the city and eight million people seem to be missing. In short, there isn't any New York, it's disappeared. Craig grabbed Farver's arm. Skipper, verify something for me, would you? And in a hurry, look. Purcell and Hatch left their seats to look over the shoulder of the pilot and the co-pilot. It's not possible, Hatch announced. What in the name of God is going on, Purcell asked. Down below, under the left wing of the 707, was a wild, tangled jungle. But something else was clearly visible. Even from 3,000 feet, through the window of the speeding airplane, it was a dinosaur nibbling some leaves off the top branch of a giant tree. That's what it was. A dinosaur. And when Flight 33 banked around to make another pass over the area, it looked up with huge, blinking eyes, perhaps thinking in its tiny mind that they were... Some big, strange bird, but it continued to feed anyway. In the first-class passenger cabin, the RAF pilot stared at what he thought he saw sweep beneath them. The fat lady sitting next to him asked him what was the matter, but he didn't answer her. A tourist passenger in the rear of the plane, a zoology professor coming back from a sabbatical, gulped and marred the bridge of his nose as he thrust his face against the glass to stare down at what appeared to be an extinct animal that he had lectured about a thousand times but a 707 is a rapid piece of machinery. Within moments, it had left Manhattan Island far behind and was headed north towards Albany. But Albany, like New York, didn't exist. It was jungle and swamp and a maze of low-slung mountains. The plane headed inland, towards what should have been Buffalo, then Lake Erie and Detroit, but none of it was there. No cities, no buildings, no people. Just a vast expanse of prehistoric land. Captain Farver announced to nobody in particular, We've gone back in time. Somehow, some way, we went through the speed of sound and went back in time. There was silence from the crew. There was silence from Jane Braden, who, in this crazy illogical moment, wanted to do nothing but cry. There was silence from the captain, though his mind worked and probed and sifted and tried to formulate a plan. Any eventuality, that is, in a sense, was the Hippocratic Oath of the airline pilot. Be prepared for any eventuality and be ready to meet it at a fraction of an instant without panic or indecision. But any eventuality did not include this. It meant, you know, a flame out of an engine. It meant a runaway propeller. It meant hydraulic system gone awry. But the nightmare that was moving underneath the aircraft in the form of the eastern section of the North American continent five million years earlier, this was an eventuality not planned for in any manual. It was Craig who finally spoke. What do we do, Skipper? Purcell looked at the fuel indicator. Skipper, we're down to 19,000 pounds, he said. 
Farver scanned his instruments. Here's what we do about it. We rev this bitch back up until it's going as fast as it possibly can. We'll climb upstairs until we reach that jet stream again. And then... He looked at the faces of the men and the one girl. And then we go back to where we came from. He turned to Craig. All right, first officer, he said in a voice just loud enough to be heard. Let's do it. The 707 pointed its nose towards the high layer of cumulus clouds, and in a moment was immersed in them, pulling away from the earth that mocked them with its familiarity and with its strangeness at the same time. Hatch suddenly noticed that his Loran was working again, and he screamed out the airspeed as the ship climbed. 700 knots, he announced. 780, 800, 900. He looked up. Skipper, we're doing it, I think. I think we're doing it. The plane screamed through the sky like a projectile from some massive gun. In 38 seconds, it was up to 4,000 knots. Farver suddenly looked up, sweat pouring down his face. We're picking it up again. Do you feel it? We're picking it up again. They all felt it now, a sensation of such incredible speed, a feeling of propulsion beyond any experience they'd ever had before. And then the white light flashed in front of their faces. Once again, the cockpit bucked and lurched, and then the light was dissipated and the plane was level, its jet engine sucking in air and roaring with power. But the blinding speed had gone. The plane intercom buzzed furiously, and when Craig picked it up, he heard the frightened voice of one of the two stewardesses in the tourist section of the rear plane. The girl was trying to keep the hysteria out of her voice, and it took Craig a moment to calm her down, long enough for him to tell her that they were all right. It was just that jet stream again. Paula Temple came through the flight deck door, her face sheet white. Look, I know you've got your hands full, but somebody... Get on that pipe and get on it in a hurry. I've got at least three people back there who are close to hysteria, and she stopped abruptly, staring towards the front of the cockpit through the glass. Before she could say anything, Craig was half out of his seat, pointing. Look, he shouted. Skipper, look, we made it. We're back. Through a break in the heavy overcast, they all saw it then. It was the skyline of New York City, its tall spires shooting up towards the sky. Hatch closed his eyes and mumbled a prayer. Farver felt the sweat clammy on his forehead and for the first time noticed that his hands were shaking. He reached for the loudspeaker microphone, grinned around the cockpit, and then pushed the button. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Farver. We've had some momentary difficulties back there, but as you can see, we're over New York City and we should be landing in just a few minutes. Thank you very much. Paula leaned against the bulkhead, tears in her eyes, her lips trembling. Jane held her tightly for a moment and then kissed her on the cheek. Jane said, come on, partner, let's go back and make believe nothing happened. The two girls left, and the captain of Flight 33 breathed deeply. He was conscious of the tightness in his chest, suddenly unraveling itself. He checked the instruments, made a few adjustments, and then spoke to Wyatt. How about Idlewild? Wyatt was already fiddling with the radio. Wyatt fiddled with the radio. I can't do it. He shook his head. Our VHF is still out. Maybe Idlewilds is too, Farva suggested. Try using a higher frequency. I did that already, Skipper. Nothing from Idlewild. How about LaGuardia? Keep using high frequency. Somebody should hear us. Wyatt spoke into the microphone. LaGuardia, this is Transocean 33. LaGuardia, Transocean 33. There was some static and then a metallic voice that came from the other end. This is LaGuardia, the voice said. Who's calling, please? There was a whoop of unbridled delight from Purcell. Craig pounded the captain on the back, and Hatch kept applauding as if some unseen dance band had just finished a concert on the wing. Wyatt held up his hand for silence and went back to the mic. 
This is Transocean 33, LaGuardia. He said, we're on the northeast leg of the LaGuardia range. Both of our ILS and VOR appear inoperative. Request radar vector to Idlewild ILS. There was a pause at the other end, and then the voice came back, impatient and belligerent. What are you, some kind of a wise guy? You'd like a what? Wyatt's face sobered. A radar vector to Idlewild ILS, he repeated. What flight did you say this was? The LaGuardia Tower asked. Wyatt's voice took on tenseness. Trans, Ocean, 33. Come on, LaGuardia, quit fooling around. We're running low on fuel. The other four men in the cockpit leaned forward towards Wyatt, a tiny errant fear building in each mind as to what new development, what new and incredible wild deviation from the norm they were moving against now. Then the LaGuardia Tower voice came back on. Trans Ocean Airlines, it asked, what kind of aircraft is this? This is Trans Ocean 33, Wyatt said into the mic, a Boeing 707, and we... The voice interrupted him. Did you say a Boeing 247? Farver bit his lip, feeling anger and impatience surge through him. He plugged in his own mic. Let me handle it, he said tersely to Wyatt. Then, he held the mic close to his mouth. LaGuardia, this is a Boeing 707, and every five-second period you keep this aircraft up in the air, you're shortening the odds of us getting it back on the ground. Now don't give us this 247 jazz. You're only about... Twenty years behind the time. This is a 707 LaGuardia, a jet. Four big, lovely Pratt & Whitney turbines, only they're getting hungry for fuel and we're running low. We're low on fuel, and all we want is a radar vector to Idlewild. Now, God damn it, do you have the radar contact or don't you? There was a pause, and then the LaGuardia voice came back on, still, sullen, but with just a shade of concern. I don't know who you guys are, the tower said, and we don't know anything about all this radar, jets, or anything else. We've never heard of a 707 aircraft, but if you're really low on fuel, we'll clear you to land. Craig, who'd been consulting an approach chart during this exchange, leaned over to Farver and pointed to it. Captain, he said, their longest runway is less than 5,000 feet. Can we take a chance? The LaGuardia voice came back on. Transocean 33, you're cleared to, cleared to land on runway 22. Altimeter 2988, wind south 10 miles per hour. The captain is to report to the CAA office immediately after landing. Roger, Farber said tersely into the mic. We'll stay in touch. He removed the microphone plug, then suddenly frowned. CAA, he asked. They haven't called the Federal Aviation CAA. It was part of a pattern, he thought to himself, part of a routine they had been going through for the past hour. A jigsaw puzzle, perfect in every detail, except every now and then a round peg appeared and didn't fit in the square hole. Then he shook his head and pushed it out of his mind as he turned to Craig. We'll bring her down, Craig. He said it'll be like landing in a phone booth, but... Hatch was standing up between his seat and the two pilots' chairs, suddenly pointed out the window, his eyes wide. Captain, he said, pointing a shaking finger towards the left window. Circle again, will you? He wet his lips and look. Farver winged the plane over gently, circled in as short an arc as he could, and then came back around, following the trembling figure of Hatch. And then they all saw it. The scene whisked past their eyes, and in less than a second, it registered. It was an incredible shock that made itself known optically, but then entered the mind of every one of the crew members to infiltrate their brains and corrode their lines of sanity. Yes, they had all seen it, and when Farver turned the aircraft to retrace the flight path, they saw it again. A trilon and perisphere were set in the middle of what appeared from the air to be a giant fair or carnival, and they all knew what it was. Craig's hands dropped from the controls, and he had to press them into his sides to keep them from shaking. Skipper, he said, do you know what that is down there? Do you know what? 
Farver hunched forward in his seat, and he kept shaking his head from side to side. Wyatt said in a small, strained voice, It's the New York World's Fair, that's what it is. The New York World's Fair, but that means we're in... 1939, Hatch interrupted him. We came back. We came back, but dear God, we didn't come back far enough. They all turned towards Farver. What was happening was more than they could handle. Far more than even their better-than-average minds could assimilate. And they did what any human being would do. They looked up and away, abdicated all decisions, and threw the massive dead weight of responsibility on the number one man in the cabin. Farver felt it pressed down on him. The prerogative of command, but worse, the responsibility. They all wanted to know what to do, and he was the one man who would have to tell them. And what do you tell them? What is the procedure? What is the command? What command is right and proper to cover a situation that has no precedent, no logic, and no reason? For one panicky moment, Farver's mind went blank, and he felt like turning on them and screaming, God damn it, don't look at me. Don't wait to hear what I have to say. Don't hang on the next command that's supposed to come from this airplane pilot. Holy shit, it was too much to expect that any human being could rise up in the middle of a nightmare and point the way to an awakening or anything even resembling it. But after a moment, whatever the invisible challenge that was thrown at him by the frightened faces in the cockpit, he responded. He was the captain of this aircraft, and though reality and logic were cracking up and falling to pieces all around him, by God, he would command. We can't land it, Farber said finally, his voice soft. He shook his head. We can't land in LaGuardia. And we can't land back in 1939. We've got to try again. That's all that's left, to try again. Craig nodded towards the flight deck door. What about the passengers? I think we'd better let them in on it now. Farver flicked on the PA, and he reached for the mic. Ladies and gentlemen, he said, his voice firm, full of resolve. No fake optimism, no lying in his tone. What I'm going to tell you is something I can't explain. The crew is as much in the dark as you are, because if you look out the left-hand side of the aircraft, you'll see directly below us an area called Lake Success. And those buildings down there aren't the United Nations. They happen to be... His voice faltered for a moment and then came back on. They happen to be the World's Fair. Down the length of the plane, the loudspeaker carried Captain Farver's voice, and the passengers listened as a nightmare began to close in on them. What I'm trying to tell you, Farver's voice told them, is that somehow, some way, this aircraft has gone back in time and it's in 1939. And we're going, what we're going to do now is increase our speed, get into the same jet stream, and attempt to go through the sound barrier we've already broken twice before. I don't know if we can do it again. All I ask is that you remain calm and start praying. In the cockpit, Farver pulled the yoke forward and the 707 once again pointed towards the sky. The giant aircraft disappeared through the heavy overcast. Its roaring engines grew indistinct and faded out, leaving a silence in its wake and a long jet trail that was picked up by the wind and carried away. 30,000 feet below, it was 1939, and people stared at the wondrous exhibits. There were waterfalls in front of an Italian building, the beautiful marble statuary that fronted the Polish pavilion, the exquisite detail of the tapestry and wood carving shown by the smiling Japanese. And the people walked happily through a warm June afternoon, seeing only the sunlight and not knowing that darkness was falling over the world. She was a trans-ocean jet airliner on her way from London to New York on an uneventful June afternoon in the year of 1961. 
she was last heard from 600 miles south of Newfoundland. Then, somehow, she was swallowed up into the vast design of things to be searched for on land, on sea, and in the air by anguished human beings, fearful of what they would find. You and I, however, know where she is. You and I know what happened. So if some moment, any moment, you hear the sound of jet engines flying atop the overcast, engines that sound searching and lost, engines that sound desperate, shoot up a flare or do something, because that sound you hear overhead, that sound is Transocean 33 trying to get home from the Twilight Zone. Alright squad, I'd like to thank you guys for tuning back in to another episode of the Anthology of Horror podcast. As always, I am your host and narrator, spring Jack, and if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do so by going to instagram.com slash dukelandis17. That is Duke, D-U-K-E, Landis, L-A-N-D-I-S, 1-7. Instagram.com slash dukelandis17. Please feel free to send me a message. And what have you. I may take a while to get back to you, but I promise I will get back to you eventually. I do appreciate you guys reaching out and sharing what you think of the show or asking questions, whatnot. I do uh, genuinely appreciate it, so please feel free to do so. Alright guys, thank you once again for listening. And until next time, stay spooky.
was an outlaw Spend my life taking ass and taking names There will be 